It's the next level. Silly thing to ask you, but how many of what did they have to kill? Don't say that because I'm a, I love animals and I've seen animal shelters. I bought it already red with black in it, so I didn't know what it oh, was. Oh, probably from an artificial bird. <laughs> did you ever go to any kind of acting school? Not in the beginning. I, I started on a talk show, you know. But when a young actress says, how do you succeed in this business, you don't study. always say you have to study. I think you should study. Death, study, work, and then maybe you can make it. Can I ask you something? Certainly. Do you ever fantasize about being killed? Do you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying? the most horrible way to die. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy. Violent content. Parental discretion is advised. Podcast intro, take 1,733. Okay, maybe not that many, but for some reason, it's interesting because when I turn the microphone off, I have these long five-minute argument rants in my own head that I speak out loud. I have no problem talking. I turn the microphone on, and I become a bumbling idiot. For whatever reason, I don't know why. I don't know if it's the pressure of the microphone or I think, oh my God, people are going to hear me talk. Then they're going to sound so stupid. I don't know what it is. I really do not know. But I can turn the microphone on and all of a sudden I can't talk. Except for this intro because probably because I'm criticizing myself for not being able to talk. (laughs) Maybe it comes from being an introvert all the time. I don't know. But it seems like, because, okay, jumping back a little bit here. The whole point to me ranting about this is because when I wanted to open this show, I wanted to talk about articles that I had read online about the link between horror films and certain mental health issues, whether it be anxiety, depression, whatnot, because this week's movie review kind of deals with those themes. So I was reading up on the internet and reading that, you know, they're basically saying that, you know, if if horror movies trigger anxiety or depression in someone, maybe you shouldn't watch horror films. And for me, I've always approached horror films as they've helped me deal with my anxiety and depression. So I kind of got the opposite feel from, you know, what what the health sites online are saying as opposed to how I approach it is like two different things. So I was going to talk about that, and for whatever reason, kept hitting record, turned the microphone on, and I can't talk. And I, 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 again, I almost wonder if that's like my own insecurity. I don't know. I honestly can't tell you. I'm not that smart. <laughs> I know, stupid guy always trying to pretend he's smart on a podcast. But yeah, I, it, it just, 
for whatever reason, this I've had to redo this intro, and I maybe I'm the only podcaster that has this problem. I don't know. Um, maybe it maybe it's a thing. Like I don't I don't edit my podcast probably as much as other podcasters do. I know a lot of people tend to really pick apart their episodes and make sure that it's a cohesive flow and whatnot. I tend to hit record and just let it go. The odd time I'll edit something out, but for the most part, I leave everything in. But yeah, for whatever reason, intros. Intros are always the hardest part for me for any show. And that's 96 episodes worth so far. I'll never get it. Anyways, on that note, from the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero... I am your host, Postmortem Paul, welcoming you back to What Lurks Lurks Behind Behind Podcast Podcast Zero. Zero. And yes, as I stated, this is episode 96, the movie review of the week is an important film, and I will explain that later on during the review and whatnot, but it is a very important film to me and to many others. It's from 1987. It was written by Wes Craven, produced by Wes Craven, directed by Chuck Russell, starring Heather Langenkamp, Robert Englund, and Patricia Arquette in her first ever film debut. Well, you can only have one debut, but from 1987, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors. And before that, though, so I watched another part three Um, just yesterday, actually. I guess it's a part three. The movie universes, right? Like, why can't we just do simple things? But anyways, whatever. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, uh, is part three in The Conjuring films, although there's the whole Annabelle series and Curse of La Leonia, and I know I always say that last part wrong, but whatever. Uh, And The Nun, um, you know, these movies, someone posted this thing online, it's supposed to be the order in which you watch the films. I really wouldn't worry about that. I, I haven't watched parts one and two of the conjuring in probably over a year i watched part three yesterday and pretty much understood what i needed to understand and the annabelle films i've watched once each and didn't really care for them so i mean it is what it is i guess if you're a big fan of it you'll watch them in chronological order as you know as the story is supposed to be told and whatnot but i don't know i watched the third one pretty much on its own and for me it's another addition to the Conjuring film universe, and it still proves to me, personally, anyways, that the Conjuring films themselves, and I'm talking Conjuring, Conjuring 2, and this one, are probably the best of the bunch. Now, that's being said that I'm not a big fan of the Annabelle films. I, I don't hate them, but I just, they don't do anything for me. Like, I, I kind of watch them, I'm like, man, eh, alright. And I mean, like, I don't feel like I wasted an afternoon or anything, but I just... They don't keep my attention like the Conjuring films do. Uh, the Nun was me. Oh, whatever. And as for the Curse of La Leornia, I think I said it right this time. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but that one, I mean, I, I watch it for Linda Cardellini. Anyways, um, the third film, though, I will say this. Uh, I, 
a lot of people have been bringing up, is it accurate to the story it's based on? And my thing is, well, it does say it's based on a true story, but it never says it's the absolute recreation of the true story. And what is the truth? I mean, in this day and age, honestly, what are we talking about truth? Truth is whatever basically people want to believe the truth is these days. So it's, it, it, leave that one up to interpretation, honestly. For me personally, I watched this movie. I enjoyed Patrick Wilson as Ed Warren and Vera from, is, am I saying this right? Farmiga as Lorraine. They're awesome. Both, they do what they do. They've been solid in the first two films. They're solid in this one. The pacing in the movie is decent. There's very little lull in the story. I mean, the thing is, is you have a typical possession film doing what it's doing. It's filmed very nicely. Um, keeps its feet firmly planted in the universe that these Conjuring films have been created in. And I don't know, like, for me it worked. I, I do like there's a, a nice little throwback shot at the beginning of the film that kind of like, you know, uh, lends a nod to The Exorcist. It's been highlighted all over the internet. I'm not spoiling anything by saying that. It, it does what it does. I, w I personally was really impressed with the film. I enjoyed it. Um, let's put it this way. It's an hour and 51 minutes long, and I didn't look at my phone once the whole time it was on. So... That says something, because there's a lot of movies these days that I will check my phone at least once while I'm watching it. I didn't with this one. So that's saying something. Whether or not it's accurate to, you know, its true story, well, whatever. You believe whatever you want. Moving on to something else now. Um, way back, I believe it was episode 72, when I did the movie review for VFW. That was an episode that, well, it's kind of funny because that episode was supposed to start a trend that never kind of took off with this show, but I had also reviewed a video game prior to doing the film review, and if you guys remember correctly, the video game I reviewed was Cloudpunk. So it was a PC game that has now moved to console. Uh, it's now on, um, it's on the Switch, it's on PS4, PS5, and Xbox One, Xbox Series X, blah, 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 blah. I truly enjoy this game. As a matter of fact, I go as far as to say, as much as Cyberpunk 2077 is a very massive game, Cloudpunk, on the other hand, is probably my favorite Cyberpunk game. Mm, yeah, I would have to say, I think it's probably my favorite cyberpunk game that i i played let's say within the last you know 10 years or so 15 years so anyways moving back to cloudpunk so cloudpunk you guys remember i did the review episode 72 well recently um a dlc was released for the game now this is strictly through pc not on console and they have uh, the the creator the the developers have been asked will this come to console as well and they've said right now currently they're not sure um they they tend to stick with pc pc is where the game originated and they are working on a new game called welcome to Navalis, which is sort of like a sims game that will take place in the same world but players will be able to create their own environments and our own worlds and whatnot i'm kind of really hoping we get to have a dog <laughs> because one part that i absolutely loved about this dlc was that 
there was two moments I actually got to play as the dog, and I was very happy about that. Anyways, Cloudpunk's DLC was called City of Ghosts. Uh, I have to say that for a DLC, this is pretty much, um, it's a game-sized edition. Um, and kind of cool because this time around, they've actually had where certain decisions you will make will affect your story. Some people complained the last for the um, the original game, Cloud, Cloudpunk. Some people complained that they felt that the decision-making really didn't affect the game um i will say that i've already achieved one of the endings of i believe they said there's three separate endings you can get three or four anyways i got one of them so far and let's just say i got the worst one first so i'm kind of glad that's out of the way but it was very abrupt and i was like oh shouldn't have made that decision but anyways so yeah it is what it is. I'm currently on my second playthrough now to see if I can get another different ending and sort of changing my choices a bit and seeing what will happen from it. But yeah, it's got some cool new puzzles. Um, there, a different story that fits nicely. Like there's some different things. There's actually some high stake shit that happens in this game. And I was like, hmm, kind of cool. And not to mention some new characters. And we are introduced to two of the characters literally right out of the gate. The game starts and you are playing as a character named Hayes. And you are talking to your arresting robot officer, Morpho. I, so Hayes basically is like some like semi-drunk screw-up who basically any bad decision in his life he could make, he made. <laughs> and... He basically the game opens up. You're supposed to be walking to your haba, and your haba, like I explained in my review way back when, that the habas are kind of like um, the Blade Runner spinners, um, you know, the hovercrafts and whatnot. Anyway, so he's supposed to be walking to that, and he can't. You can't get there because there's this robot standing in your way, and it's a corpsec officer robot. Well, he's in training, but supposedly the Next morning, he will be a full-blown officer, and his first mission is to arrest you. <laughs> and the whole game, he it, it, when you're playing as these two characters, the whole time, it's Morpho keeps saying to Hayes, I will arrest you at 8 a.m. tomorrow. And it's just the banter and the humor between the two of them was kind of like nice and fresh because the characters of Rania and Camus from the first, like the, the initial game, they're they're really awesome characters, but there wasn't that much humor with them. Um, a lot of the humor in this game comes from the voice acting, which I'm not going to lie. Some of it is bizarre as shit. Uh, and this goes for the original game. It goes for the DLC. Some of the choice choices made in the voice acting, you're kind of like, huh, okay, <laughs> that's kind of strange. But uh, as I said, the... The first time I reviewed this game, and I'm going to say it again, I kind of like that because one, it shows that these like these actors were not afraid to give some form of a life to these characters, and it adds character to the game itself. So I'm not complaining about it. In terms of the overall DLC, for what I've played so far in the initial ending that I got, uh, I'm happily impressed with the game. I I'm not... A hundred percent sure 
if I think it's better than the original game. The original game I've played three times now, and I really do enjoy it. I will say that this DLC, because of there's certain options where you can go one way or another, and you can make different choices, it does give it replay, like re. Uh, re- it gives it that ability to be re- replayed, basically. <laughs> I wanted to say replayability, which I can now finally say, but it just wasn't coming out. Um, I, I will also say that, and I understand this, and I said this before, the Cloudpunk game may not be a game for everyone, and I am totally understanding of that. It, because it's very much, you, know, you drive from point A to point B, and you don't do a whole lot. The story kind of tells itself... What I do like is that in this this DLC, there's also one aspect where they have now that um, basically a Terminator-style character is chasing you. And there is some actual, like, you have to kind of move fast and you have to think quickly. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting because the first time around, it didn't have that. It was basically just drive from point A to point B, walk around, collect a few things, and the story unfolds. Where with this, they actually had, you know, some giddy up and go to it. And I was like, Oh, all right. Not too bad. So, um, I enjoyed it. I do. I will admit when I played the original game, the first time I preferred the third person view, I, I'm not going to lie. This was a game. I actually enjoyed the first person view. Um, the, the DLC, it, it, I mean, you're in the same world. There's nothing, there's nothing really new in terms of environments or anything. You're in this, basically the same world you were in the first time around, but it's just, I find the mechanics flow a little bit better. I think they tweaked a few things when they made this DLC. So being in first person view actually really worked nicely. As much as I, I, I think the original game was a nine out of 10 might say that this was about an eight also because um i'm a big fan of the soundtracks like as a matter of fact when i originally started playing this game for about a week i played the soundtracks non-stop at work every night every night i just had it on repeat and i had made this full playlist it was the first soundtrack and the dlc soundtrack just playing over and over the first soundtrack is the one that gives you all the iconic themes all the 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 major uh, musical cues that even show up in the DLC. The DLC has some great musical cues, but that first soundtrack is a bit better. And I have to say that in terms of this game, the DLC is about an eight where the original game was a nine. Um, and I think that's basically how I approach this. So like I said, it, it's, there's certain things that I think were really tweaked better for the game, but, and, and I mean, I will say it's a game sized edition. Like, you know, it takes a couple days to get through. So what, which was good too. It wasn't just like a, a two hour DLC and bang, it's done. No, they gave you a full game worth and a full story, but I think my heart still lies with the original game just a little bit more. Um, and I'll also add one last thing before we move on to the trailer timeout currently acquired the birds alfred hitchcock's the birds in 4k uhd blu-ray and let me just say it is very nice um i was thoroughly impressed with 
the look of the, the of the movie. Uh, very cleaned up, very uh, it's beautifully polished. Looks like it could be released in a theater today, and you would never know it was filmed in 1962, released in 1963. So, yes, the Birds 4K Blu-ray. Um, if you can get your hands on it, I highly advise it. There's some really cool extras on it as well. But now it's time for me to shut up and let the trailer do what it does. Actually, this is an interesting trailer because the theatrical trailer is something that audio-wise doesn't work very well. Um, the theatrical trailer for A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is basically a girl singing the, or she's like kind of like humming the 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 Freddy um the dream chant, you know, the one, two, Freddy's coming for, and it's basically just the music doing that, and the girl's humming it, and she's holding the paper mache house that Patricia Arquette creates in this movie, and that's about it. There's not much audio-wise, so it's interesting because the the trailer timeout is more of a TV spot, just because I wanted to give it something of a little bit of an audio oomph. So it's not technically the theatrical trailer. On that note, though, when we return from this small little trailer timeout, we're going to review and remember one of the most important films for me in my teenage years. As I basically wrote in my notes, I had to quote Freddie on this one because it's going to be back in the saddle again, kids. Well, he didn't say the kids part, but be back in the saddle again when we return. It's 1987. Do you know where Freddy is? There's no waking up from this nightmare. Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors. So interesting little thing as I'm recording this, and this was totally unplanned. I did not realize that this weekend, on the Sunday, was also Robert Englund's birthday. Kind of cool, actually, because um, when I planned on doing this episode, I wasn't planning it for that specific reason. But yeah, he turned 74, which apparently, for some reason on the internet... Everyone kept saying he turned 72. I I don't like being that guy that has to like correct people on the internet, but there were a couple like posts where I, I, I would kind of like very politely try to tell people. I'd be like, he was born in 1947, so he, technically he'd be 74. And you know, I was trying to be polite about it because it's like, I saw it everywhere. So many people kept saying he turned 72, and I'm like, is it me who's wrong? Like, <laughs> because two years ago on my social media memories feed, it said, you know, I posted that he turned 72 two years ago. So I can math and I add two years to that. And I'm like, well, he's 74, but I don't know. Anyways, it, it wasn't that I wanted to be a dick to people, but I was like, did I miss something? Like, is it me who's wrong? Like, <laughs> cause I'm not going to lie, like, Robert Englund is is one of my, like, horror heroes, like, and interestingly enough, he was the first horror celebrity that I kind of met, and 
I think I've told that story before on uh, on the podcast about like when I first met him and I was nervous as hell and I didn't know what to say, how to talk or anything. And I completely felt like a bibbling idiot. And yet he made the experience really cool. Um, clearly he, he'd had, you know, experience with, you know, those kinds of fans and whatnot. So it's like, I, I've always kind of known a lot of tidbits and facts about Robert Englund. And then when I was seeing on, you know, all over the internet, people were like, he's 72. And I'm like, no, that was two years ago. Oh, I get it. Because the past two years have sucked so much. We wanted to forget them. I got it. Okay. Anyways, whatever. <laughs> but yeah. So currently in my hand right now, I hold a copy of A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors on VHS. And I know people, you know, some people like to laugh at us that love our VHS. I know it's a nostalgic thing, and I know it's something that, you know, we're not stupid. We know that, you know, visually, you know, VHS is not the greatest format. I mean, that chalk that up to digital or, you know, 35 millimeter film or whatever. But there's just something about, and I guess it's, if you grew up as a VHS kid, there's those sounds. And I know it sounds, it that alone sounds kind of stupid, but you put the tape in and you hear the wheels start to turn and you press play and it, it, there's just the lines on the TV and everything. And I know people, you know, especially the younger generations that may not get it, they're like, why do you want all these clunky plastic things around your house when you can put it all on the cloud and it's just there and you can watch it anywhere? And it's like, I get that. I've always personally felt like owning a movie in the cloud is not actually owning it. But then again, that's the generation thing, right? Because I remember the the first movie, first VHS movie that my mother ever actually bought me. I remember we got our first VCR and... She bought the first movie. It was the first movie we would actually christen the the VHS player with. And it wasn't Gremlins. Gremlins was the first one I bought, but technically it wasn't the first movie that we had in our household. First movie we had in our household was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I know you laugh your ass off, but the videotape itself cost $89. This was back at a time when owning a movie at home was like, big shit like you paid a lot of money for these things nowadays you know I, it, it makes me laugh but like when i rented the conjuring it was 24.99 for 48 hours and sure okay back in the day when you had video rentals you could get you know a video for the weekend for two bucks yes okay but the thing is is that we're getting the conjuring movie at a time while it's still out in the theaters, back in the days of VHS, you had to wait two, three years sometimes before this VHS got released. I mean, the movie E.T. came out in 1982, and if I remember correctly, its VHS release was like in 1985 or 86. It was years later. Um, anyways, I'm kind of making this really long, this really short story really long. But the thing is, is that the idea of VHS, and I know, like, I, like I've said, like people don't always get it, but... There's just that feeling of I can pop the tape in, I can watch it in very poor quality, but it brings me back. It brings me back to those days when I used to sit in front of, you know, a 20-inch screen TV that, you know, weighed the weight of like 15 75-inch TVs these days. I mean, those fuckers were heavy, but you got to watch it at home and you could watch it over and over and 
sure you had to rewind it and rewinding you know took a good couple minutes depending on how fast the vcr actually rewound the tape but <laughs> it's just there was that 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 feeling that came with it and right now holding this this vhs tape it's like there's a part of my my teenage years that is connected to that tape so Without further ado, let's move on to the actual review. So, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, was released in North America February 27th, 1987. I think I believe, well, I believe I already mentioned that this was the directorial debut of Chuck Russell. If not, I have now just said it. Um, which is kind of cool because right after this, he went on to direct films like The Blob, The Blob remake uh, starring um, Kevin Dillon. Uh, he was, he did The Mask with Jim Carrey, movie Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Bless the Child, which was, is that Nicole Kidman or Kim Basinger? I, I know I saw the movie and I think I saw it only once and I believe Bless the Child is, I want to say it's Nicole Kidman and then The Scorpion came at the rock. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to move past Bless the Child because I'm starting to feel really stupid that I cannot remember who was in it. Um, the movie A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was written by Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, Frank Darabont, and Chuck Russell. And that is story and screenplay. Uh, this was also Frank Darabont's first screenplay, and he would go on to become an Academy Award-winning Screenplay writer, so this is kind of where he got his start. It always starts in horror, guys. All the greats always start in horror. Uh, based on characters created by Wes Craven. Obviously, the movie was produced by Robert Shea and Sarah Risher. Although there were other producers, primarily executive producers, that included Rachel Talalay, who would go on to direct Freddy 6, uh, Freddy's Dead, uh, Steve Thompson, and Wes Craven. Cinematography for the movie was by Roy H. Wagner. Uh, he also did films like Return to Horror High, Nick of Time, Quantum Leap, a lot of TV work. And he's currently actually working on a film right now that stars Monica Kina, who was in Freddy vs. Jason, Danny Trejo, and Jason Mewes, uh, famous from all those Kevin Smith films. Uh, the movie is known as Zombie Bride. No release date as of yet, but Roy Wagner is the one working on it cinematography-wise, so that's kind of cool. The music for this film was by Angelo Badalamenti, who apparently, um, when you when you read his resume, David Lynch likes working with him a lot. I've noticed a lot of Lynch films, including Blue Velvet, Lost Highway. He worked on Twin Peaks and all its subsequent sequels and movies and whatnot. You know, series sequels and whatnot. Uh, Mulholland Drive. He also worked on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And Cabin Fever. Eli Roth's 2002 film Cabin Fever, which I mentioned because I just watched that last night. As a matter of fact, it's the film that followed The Conjuring. <laughs> um, I watched the director's cut. I'd never seen the director's cut, which, eh, not bad. It's kind of, it, there's not a whole lot extra to it, but it, it is kind of cool. Moving on to the special effects of Nightmare 3. Uh, primarily, Kevin Yager is the big name attached to this, as well as Screaming Mad George. 
And then we have Doug Beswick and Mark Brian Wilson. Now, okay, so I'm going to mention Mark because I have to sort of correct something from the previous episode I did when I talked about the gate. I mentioned Mark because when I was discussing the gate, I gave credit to a wrong person. Um, I was talking about Craig Reardon in the, in the previous episode. And actually, like, I gave Craig Reardon the credit for creating the marionette puppet scene in Nightmare 3. Um, that was incorrect. The, the scene actually gets credited to Mark Brian Wilson. And the reason why I kind of screwed that up is because Mark, when he was working on the gate, was working as part of Craig Reardon's uh, crew. Where in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, he works as part of Doug Beswick's special effects crew. Um, anyways, just by going the wrong way and going the wrong path when I was like doing my little connect the dots on the internet for the last episode. I kind of gave credit to Craig Reardon. Not that Craig didn't deserve credit. He, he was great for the special effects of the gate but it was actually Mark Brian Wilson who did create the marionette scene um, for this movie uh, with basically the uh, what I call the, uh, the Corey Feldman lookalike kind of guy. Uh, I'll get more into that in a bit. But, um, yeah, so I, that's why I mentioned Mark Brian Wilson, because technically he is the one who deserved the credit for the marionette scene and not Craig Reardon. Um, and as for Kevin Yager, well, shit. Um, yeah, he's worked on a whole ton of stuff. Um, he basically, in terms of the Elm Street series, he started on Elm Street 2. Uh, doing Freddy's makeup. And then he would do this film. He did A Night on Elm Street 4. He also worked with Robert Englund on 976 Evil, which was uh, Robert Englund's uh, directorial debut. He also worked on films like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. He worked on the TV series Freddy's Nightmares, uh, the movie Man's Best Friend with Lance Henriksen, Children of the Corn Part 3, Hellraiser Bloodline, The Dentist with, whoa, Corbin Burnson. He worked on two Tales from the Crypt films, both uh, Demon Knight and Bordello of Blood. He worked on the movie Face Off, Ion Flux, and he was responsible for creating the Chucky doll in Child's Play. He was also responsible for the Crypt Keeper from the Tales from the Crypt series of like TV series and films. And I remember reading a while back, I didn't write this down, but I remember re reading a while back that apparently when he created, I, is it, I think it's when he was creating Chucky. Chucky came before the Crypt Keeper, if I remember correctly. It's one way or the other. Anyways, the eyes for Chucky and the eyes for the Crypt Keeper are the same eyes. So whichever one came first, which... I probably should have looked that up, but I didn't. Um, whichever one came first, when they were creating the second one, they took the eyes out and basically... So the eyes of Chucky and the eyes of the Crypt Keeper are the same. Um, so, and because Kevin Yager created both of them. So that's kind of cool. Uh, let's move on to our starring cast. I did this a little bit differently, okay, guys? Because it seems like every episode I kind of really... You know, blow off a good 10 minutes just going through the cast and all the different movies they've been in. 
I kind of wanted to get away from that because one, this is a pretty lengthy list of names. A lot of these names are pretty big, so we we've we know where they're from. We've heard for where they're from before. I mean, like Robert Englund is Freddy Krueger. Who doesn't know Robert, right? Like, I mean, we know what he's been in. He's been in, you know. Uh, urban legend he's been in obviously every nightmare film um v i mean come on now like i, I could sit here and go on in 976 evil was his directorial debut i mean he's robert england is a big name but he is technically the freddy krueger that's what everyone knows him as he was in wishmaster um i mean as i sit here and i'm i'm talking about him like more and more titles pop into my head so instead of going on this long list i just figured just name the cast who they played and you know one or two movies maybe top so robert england as freddy krueger heather langenkamp as nancy thompson who obviously is returning from part one of this series um craig wasson as dr neil gordon patricia arquette her film debut this uh, and she's um I wrote this down later on in my notes, but I'm going to mention it now. She is the first of two Arquettes that Wes Craven would go on to work with. Obviously, she plays Kristen Parker in this. And then later on, years later in 1996, when a certain movie known as Scream came out, David Arquette worked with Wes Craven as uh, Deputy Dewey. (laughs) So she is the first of two Arquettes to work with Wes Craven. Um, I hope I pronounced his last name right. Ken Sagos as... um, Roland Kincaid, basically Kincaid. Uh, he would also return in a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. Rodney Eastman as Joey. He also returns in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. However, Kristen Parker's character does return in Part 4, but not as Patricia Arquette. Like, like Patricia Arquette did not play the role in Part 4. As for some of the other kids, Jennifer Rubin as Taryn. Uh, she is the... Um, the, the badass, sexy punker who's got the drug addiction problem. Uh, Bradley Gregg as Philip Anderson. He's basically our Corey Feldman lookalike. Ira Hyden as Will Stanton. Will is the Dungeons & Dragons, the, the wizard master. That's who he plays. Let's move on to Penelope Sudro as Jennifer Caulfield. Um, she is basically our um, welcome to primetime bitch <laughs> star there. Uh, Nan Martin as Amanda Kruger slash Mary Helena. Ooh, here's one you guys will like. Uh, Morpheus as Max. No, his name's not Morpheus. It's Larry Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne. Yes, it's but it's Morpheus. I bring this up because we just got some really cool fucking news about Matrix 4. Uh, so they quietly may have cast Christina Ricci in the Matrix 4 and just kind of like quietly slid it out there when they released the press kit announcing all the cast members. Whoa, hey, her name is there. Is it December 22nd yet? Because now I really need to see this movie. Um, three more names to go through. John Saxon has returned from part one as Donald Thompson. And I'm, I got a funny story about John Saxon really quickly. I recently watched this movie called My Mom's a Werewolf. And however, this movie eluded me before. But it here's the funny part. I own it. I didn't even realize I owned it. But anyways, it's on one of those like 
DVD packs where you like you get like eleven films for like ten bucks or whatever, right? And this one night I was like, what the fuck do I want to watch? I wanted to watch something just like stupid and batshit crazy. So I watched this movie called My Mom's a Werewolf that was on this DVD collection that I had. And the reason it pulled me in is because I noticed it said John Saxon was in the movie. And I'm like, oh, fuck, right on. Well, the funny thing about this is that not only is John Saxon in the movie, he plays the werewolf that goes after this mom to turn her into a werewolf. And on top of that, on top of that, he's camping it out like to, like it's not even like when you see John Saxon role, he's kind of got like that serious character role going. This, he's not serious in this, like he is, but he isn't. And it's just it's funny, it's campy. I highly recommend if you want to watch a very stupid movie from 1989, watch My Mom's a Werewolf because seeing John Saxon as a werewolf is awesome. And we will move on to Priscilla Pointer as Dr. Elizabeth Sims and Brooke Bundy as Elaine Parker, who's basically Kristen's mother. She's very annoying in this movie. Plays it well, let's put it that way. I I don't want to knock the actress, but the character of Elaine is a bit of a bitch. Uh, The runtime for the movie is an hour and 36 minutes long. It's rated R for violence, frightening scenes, nudity, language, and substance usage. Uh, And also substance referrals, um, or references, whatever you want to say. Uh, Budget was around 4.6 mil, and the worldwide gross was just under 45 million. So pretty much almost... Ten times what it spent, it made back. And now it's time for the synopsis, which I might add. Hear that? It's right off the back of the VHS box, yes. The media release, by the way. Not the remastered version that came out later. Okay, so the synopsis is this. It's been years since the demented child killer, Freddy Krueger, was torched by an avenging mob on Elm Street. Now, the last of the Elm Street kids have moved into a psychiatric ward. There, the diabolical Freddy haunts their dreams, torturing them with a ghastly, surreal assortment of unspeakable ordeals. Their only hope is dream researcher Nancy Thompson, who helps them band together to face the supernatural maniac on his own turf. But, once inside Freddy's seething, hallucinatory dream world, there's only one way out. Straight through a hellish, heart-stopping nightmare of pure, razor-edge terror. Enough adjectives, maybe? (laughs) Anyways. So, for the next segment of this podcast review, I'm calling this Welcome to Weston Hills. Weston Hills is the psychiatric establishment. the, The psych ward. Um... According to Wes Craven, the idea for the mental hospital that would, you know, Weston Hills, uh, some people thought it was a, a, a copy of, uh, or like that it was inspired by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but actually that was not where he got the inspiration for it. He got it from seeing, uh, on, especially in the 80s and, and going right into the 90s, there was a lot of... Um, like commercial ads, late night TV ads and whatnot, basically about um, mental health uh, institutions. And, you know, 
like it, he kind of like made fun of it saying like you know it was like these commercials that would be like send us your troubled child and we'll make them okay like um but actually like when you know they they'd send these kids off like it, they were more like prisons or insane asylums and whatnot so he got kind of the idea for that um and prior to this i mean part two he had nothing to do with he he never saw elm street as being something that could become a series uh, we've heard this story before with john carpenter um in referring in reference to halloween so anyways this was wes craven's technically his first sequel uh working with uh the, the elm street characters and whatnot and he wanted to much like carpenter with halloween 2 when when john carpenter did halloween 2 he wanted that to be the end of michael myers well when wes craven did this one, he wanted this to be sort of the ending of Freddy. He, he felt this would be the, the, the full story. Now, I mean, the thing is, is that with Halloween, you have a, Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, both within their original trilogies, kind of have that that off movie, that movie, the, the one film that doesn't fit. With Nightmare on Elm Street, it was part two. With Halloween, it's part three. Um, but anyways... So he, he creates Weston Hills. He figures, okay, this is where I'm going to put my characters and I'm going to have them do battle here. And this will also be the send-off of Freddy, which is why he brought back Heather Langenkamp and John Saxon because he basically wanted to end this story with the original characters. Uh, he never wanted it going past part three. Obviously, he returns for a new nightmare, but parts four, five, and six, he he didn't see those happening. He, he wanted this to be, you know, basically where Freddie would end. Um, a few other cool little trivia facts, and then I will uh, move on to why I call this an important film. Uh, Dick Cavett, there's the scene. And I, I played a clip at the beginning of the episode uh, with the Dick Cavett talk show. And he's got Jaja Gabor is on the show with him. Um, she was not supposed to be the original guest. It was supposed to be Sally Kellerman, I believe was who it was. But then Dick Cavett was allowed to choose who he would have on his show for that 30 second segment. So he chose Jaja Gabor and his reasoning is hilarious <laughs> because he thought in his mind that Zsa Gabor was the dumbest person he'd ever known. So he decided to have her on the show just so that Freddie could kill her. That's classic. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a cock move, but I still thought it was fucking funny. I'm like, all right, hey, that's a way of doing it, you know? Because um, he can basically have her get killed without him actually killing her. And... Apparently she was none the wiser. Apparently she didn't even prepare for this. She didn't even know she was going into a horror film. She just knew she was recording this scene where she would be interviewed by Dick Cabot and it was being used in a movie. So of course she's playing it completely like she would in real life. And then all of a sudden Robert Englund dressed as Freddie jumps out and says, what the fuck? Who cares what you think, bitch? And I guess she genuinely was like freaked out about it. So that's kind of funny, but it only highlights that Dick Cabot was kind of right about her. She really was clueless. So the character of Kristen, Kristen Parker, uh, in this film played by Patricia Arquette, originally was not Patricia Arquette. Well, I can't say that it wasn't originally her, but someone else auditioned for this role as well. 
Um, kind of makes me wonder what it would have turned out like, but I do like the fact that they went with Patricia Arquette. But Winona Ryder would, had also auditioned for the role, and I think that would have been kind of interesting to see. Um, it would have also been um, kind of coincidental because in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1, like in the first original film, uh, Johnny Depp was in that film, and years later, Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp were actually engaged at one point. Um, so it kind of ties them all together to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Also, on a personal level, I started rewatching Stranger Things uh, recently. So, of course, there's that Winona Ryder uh, reference in, in terms of a personal view for me, anyways. Um, but yeah, so. Chuck Russell did make sure to keep Patricia Arquette on. I know even at one point there, there's mention that the studio was kind of not sure if they wanted her or not. And he made sure that he kept Miss Arquette in this movie, which was good for her because she went on to have a great career. She's obviously still doing great stuff and whatnot. But, um, and as I mentioned before, she was the first of two Arquettes to work with Wes Craven. So that's kind of cool. Um, so I've mentioned the, both the VHS tape a couple times. When the VHS was released, as well as the beta release and the Laserdisc release, the at the beginning of the film, we have uh, Kristen is building the paper mache house. Uh, that's the replica replica of Freddy's house, and whatnot. And there's a song playing on the radio. And in the VHS beta and Laserdisc releases, when the movie first came out in the home video market. They had replaced Dawkins into the fire with a song by Jay Ferguson called Quiet Cool, which was from a new line movie called Quiet Cool. Um, I believe it was 2002 with the DVD releases when the the original uh, Dawkins song was re-entered back into the film. But uh, it just it's. I'm not even sure. It, I I have I couldn't find anywhere why it was done that way i don't know if it was just to promote the jay ferguson song or whatnot but yeah so the Dawkins song was removed it's kind of i'm it's kind of cool that the dvd and the blu-ray now have it back in there though um okay so did you know i i wanted to remember how i wanted to intro in this did you know and I know people out there are going to say you're wrong. No, uh, it's not wrong. Um, that this is the first movie. Part three was the first movie that we called him Freddy. And don't worry because I even had to question it myself. But yes, in the first two films, he is mentioned by name, but he's mentioned as Fred Krueger, not Freddy. And I had to, I had to actually think about that for a bit. And I was like, oh, shit, that is right. So yes, this is a little trivia fact. If you want to, kind of like in Scream. Remember in Scream when when they call up um, Drew Barrymore's character there, and they're Casey Becker, and they they call her up and they're like, uh, "Who was the killer in the in Friday the Thirteenth?" And she gets tricked, right? She's like, "It's Jason, it's Jason." And meanwhile, it was Jason's mother. Well, if you ever want to play that trick on somebody, just be like, "What did they call the killer in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part One and Two? And people will be like, "Freddy, it's Freddy." No, it was Fred. So I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, and in terms of Freddy also, okay, so everyone has made their jokes. We all know the jokes about the the Freddy snake, how it looks like a big dick. <laughs> it looks very phallic, phallic, whatever. I always say phallic. Um, it looks phallic. Um, 
And you got to give the special effects crew some credit. And they didn't realize that at first when they built it. I don't know how they didn't realize it. But anyways, they didn't realize it. They tried to lessen the look. Obviously, they, they threw this like green goo over it um, and to kind of take away sort of the pinkish hue and whatnot. Um, but let, let's let's be fair. I mean, it's it that Freddy Snake is, is kind of the butt end of a lot of jokes, <laughs> you know. Patricia head Patricia Arquette gets some head like I, I mean we we've heard the jokes whatever but it is it's one thing and when I watch it on the VHS versus like DVD and Blu-ray I do notice this because I mentioned about VHS and how people are like that's the quality is not that much better it no it really isn't because you don't really notice the green um in the VHS recording where in the DVD and the Blu-ray, the green really stands out. You actually do see the green goo on the, on the Freddy snake and whatnot. One other thing, final trivia thing that I thought was kind of cool. So it doesn't say which character, but one of the quote unquote dream warriors, one of the kids was actually supposed to transform into like a Jaeger style robot in his dream, like sort of like Voltron or, you know, like one of the Pacific Rim Jaegers or something like that. But obviously, due to the cost restraints, that never actually happened. Now, in 2021, you know they would have done this digitally and it wouldn't have cost them nothing. But at a time when practical effects were still the thing, unfortunately, that didn't happen. That would have been kind of cool to see. Um, and I mean, we we kind of saw Freddy get digitized in Ready Player One, although he didn't fight a Jaeger style robot. And that would have been kind of cool to see, but anyways, okay. So here's my thoughts. I'm doing this a little bit differently. Um, because for the film, I'm not going to, I'm just going to approach some things a little bit differently because this film is kind of important to me. Um, and it's something that I noticed doesn't get highlighted a lot in other reviews. And I, I was doing, I did a lot of reading the past week and I saw some things mentioned, but I didn't see a lot in terms of how this movie approaches mental health. And I'm I'm probably an old grumpy man when it comes to social media and whatnot. I, while I really do appreciate that there is a way to communicate mental health issues like suicide and depression and whatnot... I find that it also has cheapened the value of listening. Um, and a lot of people, we, we use social media as a means to voice how we feel and whatnot, but it's also too easy for most people to scroll past. And I, I, I feel that sometimes it, we've lost the ability to listen to each other. And this movie kind of hammers that point without actually slamming it down our throats, uh, specifically the character of Dr. Sims, which I'll get into in a bit. But what I also like, there was, so basically this movie, I've always felt that, and it's funny because Robert Englund was nominated for an award for best supporting actor. And people, some people would be like supporting he's Freddy Krueger. He's the lead actor. In this movie, I feel like there's another lead character well past the idea of Freddy, and that is the idea of teenage depression, teenage mental health. And that is something that, 
like I said, with social media, it, it's out there more, but I don't think it's actually hitting home like it should. Um, so what I've always loved about this film is how it, uh, how it approached mental health, suicide, and the inability of humans to actually listen to each other. And that is something that, it, especially in this era where, and I, I know this myself, like I sometimes I feel like I'm like an outsider because people around me are constantly looking at their phones and I'm not a phone guy, so I don't look at mine that often. So I'm always looking up at everybody looking down. And sometimes it it can really, it can give off a feeling of isolation or like, you know, like loneliness. Um, which is interesting to say because I mentioned about Weston Hills. And Weston Hills basically in this film is the Elm Street. It's the battleground for which the kids must actually survive their worst nightmares. That to the, you know, the otherwise unknowing public... They they just figure these are kids that are in there because they gave up and they're throwing their lives away. They're drug addicts. They're they're misfits. They're they're problem kids. Just throw them away. Let them rot in these cells and whatnot. And Weston Hills is actually it's it's very important to these kids because this is the battleground to which they're fighting for their life or to their death. But it's out of the public view. It's in the public view, but out of the public view. If you know what I mean, like it's it's there. And we just disregard it like, oh, well, it's not important because let them kids deal with that shit in there and I'll deal with my shit out here kind of thing. And I feel that this movie really hits those taboo messages like really well because it never technically hammers it down your throat. And like the thing is, and again, I know it always seems like I come off as knocking social media. Social media does have its positives don't always listen to me when i go off about social media this and social media that no there are some positives to it obviously i've met some great people through social media i mean i'm never going to take that away from that and you know i've had some great discussions with people through social media so i know it always seems like i'm mr like oh i'm the grumpy you know old man that's like always down on shit but the thing is is that i think when it comes to the idea of mental health we we as a species, I think, sometimes get too careless with our approach to those who are struggling. Um, there's a lot of people that struggle that don't talk about it. And there's a lot of people that struggle that they put on a mask. And I'm not talking about your fucking COVID masks. I'm talking about like they literally put on a facade that they are doing okay when they're not. And th- this is a movie that... It, you see that too. Like these kids are trying to fight. They're trying to like, like Philip, especially the, the, the marionette kid is the one who he really doesn't think he has a problem. He's like, yeah, I'm in here because apparently I want to off myself. Sometimes people that have those strong issues don't even see that they have them. And this movie does a good job of highlighting that as well. Each of these kids in the movie needed someone to understand them. They needed someone to guide them, but do it in their world. And in this movie, it's the dream world. It's Weston Hills. It's, it's, it's the sanctuary to which they are stuck in and they needed someone to come along and help them. And that's where you get the character of, of Nancy. Nancy is is that that character that comes in who's been through it, who's who's faced it, who's 
who's been that kid that nobody would listen to before. And this movie, this is why I feel it was very important because especially uh, I know when I was growing up as a teenager, I didn't feel like I had many people I could talk to. And I'm not crying the blues or nothing. I mean, I, I've learned to, you know, deal with shit in my own way, but some of us didn't have that. We didn't have that person to talk to. And this movie kind of gave us that hope that one day someone's going to come along and is going to know that nursery rhyme that we know. Like that scene with Kristen and Nancy where Kristen is saying the, 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 the Freddy verse and all of a sudden Nancy finishes it for her. That's what we all hope for. That's, that's that bond, that link that we all one day hope we'll find. And I, I really loved how they personified that in this movie. Um, and the thing is, is that then you have the dream world where in, in this case, the dream world is where these kids, they don't hide anything. They, they are not putting on that face. They take the mask off. They, they take, they take that strength, um, like the, like that strong face that they put onto the world. They take it off and they let people see them for what they really are. Their deepest, darkest fears and whatnot. And bringing Nan, when Kristen pulls Nancy into that, it's a great metaphor for showing that when we finally shed our skin and we show who we are to someone who might possibly understand it, how we can become so much stronger through it. And I really do like the fact that in a Nightmare on Elm Street film where technically Freddy should be the star, and Freddy became a star because of this movie, but actually, there were so many stronger themes that Freddy almost like takes a back seat. He just sits back, kicks his feet up, and goes, "Hey, take the movie. <laughs> I'm just gonna ride the waves." Like, and I, I loved, and that whole bit with Kristen having that gift to be able to pull Nancy in and then help expose Nancy to the others. Like, it it was just it shows some really strong character bonding. Um, and they're able to overcome their nightmares and their boogeyman, so to speak. Well, at least some of them, most of them, uh, not all of them. I mentioned about Priscilla Pointer's character of Dr. Sims. To me, she's a very important character because she's the majority. She really is so many people. There are so many people that will brush off mental illnesses, mental health. They, they, oh, they just want attention. Oh, it's just the product of their own guilt, blah, blah, blah. And that happens a lot. It's still happening a lot. And I don't care what anyone says. And we can say that we, we've gotten to a better place with this. We have, but we still have a long way to go. And her character, if you don't watch this movie and don't get annoyed with her, you might be part of the problem. And I know that sounds really harsh to say, but the thing is, is that you should watch this movie. You should be like, man, I want to smack that bitch. Like, <laughs> not that you want to actually physically cause her harm. Let Freddie do that because that's what, you know, Dick Cabot had the right idea. Bring Shaja in and let Freddie kill her. Um, but yeah, her character is, it's in a very, and she plays it very well. She nails it dead on. Like, as much as you, she should be the character you love to hate because she plays it. She is like society. You know what I mean? Um, and Craig Watson's character of Neil Gordon, he's another important character because he also symbolizes a vast portion of the world. You know, that population that genuinely wants to help. There's so many people and you see them, you know, 
not so much the kinds that you know are on you know on the internet that are are looking for approval of their thoughts like oh hey i feel like they share my thoughts and blah blah no 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 there are genuinely people in the world that do want to help but they almost struggle with thinking outside of the box they struggle with I want to help you, but I don't know what to do because I don't see it through your eyes. And when he finally in the, in the movie, when he finally is brought into the dream world and then he sees it for himself and it's like, Oh shit, this is actually going on. He becomes a strong ally to those kids. As a matter of fact, he's essentially the one that saves them because he doesn't bury Freddie's bones. Freddie continues to be a fucking menace, you know, like, So in a way, Neil Gordon is the hero because he is that person that had a hard time seeing things for what they were. And when he allowed himself that vulnerability to open up and to see the world through these kids' eyes, he was able to finally help them, which is what Nancy helped him to do by saying, if you are ready and you actually will give in and allow yourself to see it through their eyes, you possibly can really help these kids. And eventually he does. Um, On a bit of a, I don't want to say a sadder note, (laughs) because it's really not that bad. But I mean, this is the movie where we really get to be, we really begin to see uh, Freddy's character become less of the villain and more of the one-liner comedic act. Um, I mean, he's still got his menacing laugh. He's still very distinguishably the bad guy. And I mean, he does use the kids' weaknesses against them. I mean, especially with the marionette scene and the you know the the wizard master and whatnot. I mean, he does get to these kids. Some of these kids don't survive this, but he's nowhere as creepy as he was in the first two parts of this series. Um, for me personally, part two is still by far the creepiest Freddy. Um, although, and I'm not gonna lie, I mean the original Freddy worked wonders i mean it scared the shit out of you but then part two came along and he's fucking creepy as fuck um and then of course when wes craven returns you know for part seven and we have wes craven's new nightmare he made him creepy all over again that that new nightmare freddy is nightmare fuel um other reasons that I say this movie is an important film. Yes, it really does tackle the whole mental health thing very well. I also say this is an important film because it became, during the VHS boom, it became one of the most popular VHS rentals. Uh, it became one of the most popular VHS purchases. Um, a lot of people bought this movie. They, even in today's world of digital and you know illusion purchases, and I say illusion purchases because if you're buying it in the cloud, you're technically not buying it. That cloud ever decides to lose that movie, you no longer have it. Um, I will always be a physical format kind of guy because to me, that's owning a film. But anyways, this is one of the easier films to find in VHS, Laserdisc, Beta. Um, you go online, you you can go to yard sales, thrift stores, whatever. Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is one of the easier ones to find. Not because people don't want it, but because there was so much of it made and so much of it that was purchased and so much of it that was rented. Like, even if you can't buy, like, you know, the home, the home owned version, you'll find a video rental somewhere of, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And even in terms of DVD, like, you know, old DVDs and stuff, 
there's always used versions being sold everywhere because a lot of the times people will upgrade, right? They'll go up to Blu-ray or whatever, 4K UHD and shit like that. So they shed themselves of the, the lesser qualities. Um, and then there's some of us like myself that, you know, we go for those lesser qualities. I mean, my the version I have is the original media video uh, release. So... Okay, along with part one, this makes for the perfect two-part story. Part two, as much as it is a great film, as like I said earlier, it's like the Halloween 3 of the franchise in terms of the original trilogy. I mean, obviously, Halloween 3 was the third film, and part two was the second film, blah, 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 blah. You get my point. Um, But both, I I have to say, Halloween 3 and Nightmare 2 were kind of like... They're like the movies that are there. They're part of the original trilogy, but they just don't have that same aesthetic and that same feel. I feel that this movie is also important because if it wasn't for this movie, Chuck Russell doesn't get to prove he has some gravitas in filmmaking. And it wouldn't, without the hype, he wouldn't. He might not have gone on to do what might have been the last great remake of the 80s, which was The Blob. Um, the Blob was by far... It, in terms of the 80s, I, there's three remakes that I've always felt stood out as the top of the crop, and that was The Thing, The Fly, and The Blob. And The Blob was directed by Chuck Russell. He doesn't do Nightmare 3. He might not do The Blob. That's just kind of where I'm. I, my thinking is on this. Uh, this was also the Nightmare movie that does escalate Freddy to quote-unquote stardom. Um, after this, he gets his own TV series. He gets two video games. Um He's on talk shows, he's doing interviews, he's in comic books. Hell, he even got enough traction to inspire Mad Magazine to do a spoof of the film. Um, All of a sudden, Freddy was like the top of the crowd. He was in music videos with like the Fat Boys and, you know, um, who's the other one? Uh, uh, Shit, was it Cool Modi also did a song once? And, and, you know, uh, Nightmare on My Street, you know, uh, by Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Happens after this movie comes out. This is also the movie that introduced us to Weston Hills and the whole Hypnosil thing, uh, which both made their return in 2003 in Freddy vs. Jason. So it's a very important film because this movie really set a lot of wheels in motion and it, it, it dealt with topics that were very hard to deal with in, you know, in popular culture. A lot of critics, when they review this film, they focus a lot of the remarks at the creative kill sequences, the special effects, uh, some of the acting choices. I know a few critics I read, they didn't care too much for Heather Langenkamp, uh, felt she was very flat in her performance. But it's interesting because fans absolutely love her acting and they're so glad she came back for the third film. So that's kind of why when I was going to do this week's approach to the film, I was like, I'm doing this a bit differently. I want to focus more on on not so much on, on the special effects and the kill sequences, which are all great, by the way. A lot of this is an amazing film visually, but I felt thematically a lot of reviewers don't really focus on that. And that's kind of what I wanted to focus at focus on uh rotten tomatoes has it at 72 percent fresh imdb has the movie at a 6.6 out of 10 uh i did say that robert england was uh nominated for a supporting actor role uh it was technically the saturn awards Uh, i believe the movie was also up for best horror film and can't remember what the third one was but technically uh saturn awards gave the movie three nominations um 
The Podcast Zero Rating is pretty much like this. This is a movie that tackles a very tough topic, and it does it with a brilliant approach. Gives a visual to something that is difficult to describe sometimes, thematically within the themes of um, depression, fear, suicide, and it gives hope that these things can be defeated, uh, which is something that sometimes doesn't come across so well in popular art. I mean, in music, it kind of does, but when it comes to to films, there's not a lot of films like that. There are some out there. I, I don't want to say there isn't, but I really like the this one really kind of gives hope that, the, you know, well, you can feel you're at your lowest. You can be defeated. Um, this was a film that was obviously very popular during the VHS boom. And most VHS collectors either still own it or are constantly on the lookout for it. Other things that I loved about the movie, I do love the actors. I love the fact that Heather Langenkamp and John Saxon return to this. Um, I love the special effects. Kevin Yeager does a great job. His team and Doug Bestwick's team do a great job giving us some really creative kills. The film's pacing is great, by the way. That is another thing, too. Um, doesn't spend a lot of time lulling around. Like, it basically, point for point for point. The next thing you know, 96 minutes are over, and you're like, wow, that was that movie was amazing. There's some great quotes, obviously. They get used by fans so often. Uh, specifically, the welcome to primetime bitch quote gets used an awful lot. Um, and the, not to mention the theme song by Dawkins, Dream Warriors, is a classic. Basically, a lot of people do argue that they think this is where it should have all ended. While I tend to agree with that at the same time, I am a fan of the whole series. I do love all the films. Uh, and I don't mind that it continued on. Yeah, I know parts four, five, and six are very, very, very inferior, but I still love them even, even at that. But I mean, if it had ended here, um, part one and part three would have been the perfect two part story with part two, just being a nice little interlude, you know, being put in the middle. It's one of those rare cases for me personally, where the original and the sequel, both bring something so amazing to the table that it makes it hard to place one higher than the other. So as much as I would say Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 is a 10 out of 10, this is a 10 TV heads out of 10. It's 10 cigarette burns out of 10. It's 10 sexy nurses out of 10. It's 10 syringes out of 10. It's 10 out of 10 on everything. Um, this is one of those that it's a must own on as many formats as possible. And that's all I really have left to say. I mean, it, this movie is great. It, it's one of my absolute favorites from my childhood, from my teenage years. And it it's one that constantly, whenever people ask me, you know, what's your favorite top five horror films or top ten horror films? A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 always gets mentioned. It's always in that top five list. It's always in the top ten list. It's just an absolute classic. And on that note, I want to thank everyone for listening to this week's episode. Um, yes, this uh, this episode I, I recorded a bit earlier, by the way, um, due to you know personal life uh, personal life things kind of going on. My work schedule is a little bit different this week, so I'm actually recording this a bit earlier than I normally would. So if there's any news on Monday, sorry kids, I won't be in this episode. But um, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. As always, you guys always know where you can find the show. 
Uh, you can always find it on Facebook. It will always remain on Facebook as much as I might be that guy, the grumpy old man that don't like his social media. This will always remain on Facebook for sure. And on Instagram, on Facebook.com slash what lurks behind podcast zero on Instagram at what lurks behind podcast zero Twitter. I admit, yes, I've gone kind of cold. Um, I'm not sure. And this is one of those battles I'm constantly back and forth about. Do I keep the Twitter account or don't I? Uh, it's still technically there at WLB podcast uh, zero, but I can't promise it'll always be there. I, I really, Twitter is a very, in, in a movie review where I'm talking a lot about mental health and, you know, the, the stresses of everyday life, Twitter does not help. And I know some people want to believe it does. And maybe for some people it does. For me, it does not. Um, I find it very depressing to go on there. So I try to keep it, but I can't always promise everything. So as it stands right now, it's still there. Lurker's recommendation, I'm going to say it. Watch The Conjuring. The devil made me do it. I know that there's, that, like I said, there's that post that's going around saying, watch these movies in this chronological order. With the exception of a few little Easter eggs and whatnot, you pretty much can watch this third film without even having watched the first two and still enjoy yourself and still get it. So, Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It is definitely worth watching. Next movie review. The next episode, next movie review is from 1986. I really am hovering around those 80s lately. Um, It's another sequel. Um, it's another sequel, another important sequel in, in, in a film series and whatnot. And dare I say, might even be better than the original. Ooh. Makes you wonder. Um, yes, next movie review starring Dennis Hopper. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 from 1986. This week, I'm obviously going to close out with what would be the only proper song to close out with um, obviously I'm going to close out with Dream Warriors uh, by Dokken and I want to thank everyone for coming back and listening and I know I talk a lot I babble a lot for one guy don't I which is interesting because outside of like this podcast I don't talk a lot <laughs> there's a lot of people that are always like wondering like is he all right this day? Is he all right today? He's kind of quiet. I'm always quiet, except when I podcast, for whatever reason. Um, yeah, maybe that's why I talk so much on here is because I hold it in all week long. I don't know. Um, anyways, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to let Al Pacino tell me where to go, and then we'll close off with Dawkins. So, Al, take it away. You need to shut the fuck up. <laughs>